The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 54, 1 through 10. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will peoples the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the host of all hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says the Lord. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marcia. So uh, our daughter, our oldest daughter, uh, Abby, was in the Middle East all summer. She just got home uh, and... um, got a text from her this morning, and in that text she said, I feel safer in the Middle East than I do in America these days. And what she was referring to was 251 mass shootings in the last 215 days uh, in America. And uh, I'm sure if you've been following things, you're you're aware that the latest two have been in El Paso, Texas and uh, more recently in Dayton, Ohio. And so uh, I thought that it would be the right thing uh, for us to just take a moment of silence to uh, offer any prayers that we might have for compassion and for God's care for those who are affected and continue to be affected by uh, these travesties. And so let's do that before uh, I get into the sermon, okay? I'll just give you a moment of silence to do that.
Father, please have mercy on those who have been injured. And even, Father, if you would find your way into the hearts of many who have done the injuring, we pray that you would be glorified uh, to the praise of your glorious grace and to the praise of your glorious justice. We pray especially for families who are affected, and we pray in your name. Amen. So, uh, transitioning back to our biblical text, you may have noticed uh, a lot of marriage talk. God as the bridegroom, God's people as, as the bride. Uh, there's drama, infidelity on the part of the bride, uh, withdrawal from the groom based on that infidelity, and then relentless pursuit for reconciliation and peace, filled with compassion, filled with grace and forgiveness, and so on. And so, um, you know, speaking of, med- uh, of, of weddings and marriages, one of the, the most embarrassing moments that I have on record uh, is a picture that's right there in our wedding album. And it's right after Dan Doriani, Doriani who officiated our wedding ceremony, pronounces Patty and me husband and wife. And Patty is standing there with a big glow on her face, as, as should be the case, and I am standing there kind of straight face, like the guy at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Uh, and we've got the picture, and it's there, and it's not going away. I gave new meaning at that moment as an aspiring Presbyterian minister to the phrase, God's chosen frozen. And you know, when I look back on that time in my life, I had this sort of weird uh, idea that it was irreverent to get emotional in church. And I look back and I, I, what was I thinking? I mean, we have the Psalms, which, which are constantly telling God's people both to, to lament with, with a robust lament and sadness and to rejoice with a robust rejoicing. You know, clap your hands, all you people, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. And if you don't do it, then God will cause the rocks and the trees to cry out with with joy to their maker, right? There's a disconnect. You know, Galatians, Paul asks similar questions to the, the church at Galatia when he says, what's happened to all of your joy? Like that was the presenting issue in Galatia, you know, John Calvin once wrote that there's not one blade of grass, there's no color in this world that is not intended to make men rejoice. You know, my predecessor, Ray Ortland, uh, has written a, a really wonderful commentary on the book of Isaiah, and reflecting on this text, he goes to the subject of the local church, and here's what he says. The church is the place where the gospel is preached, and gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Every church should put a notice on its front door that says, all face-saving moralists take warning. Within these doors, your chilly pride is in danger of melting into exuberant joy. Enter at your own risk. All sinners who are depressed with guilt are welcome. Christianity throbs with holy joy for bad people. God made it that way. The test of a church's faith is not only the wording in its creed, but also the gladness in its worship. The gospel demands a carefree spirit. If we aren't going to hell anymore, 
if we stand to inherit every blessing Almighty God can think of, if nothing can stand in the way of our restored humanness because it's all ours through the merit of Jesus Christ, who is the friend of sinners, if that can't make us smile, what can? So my hope today is to help you and to help me smile. God's given us two special reasons here for joy, for smiling. Smile because your guilt is taken, taken care of and smile because your shame is gone. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the guilt part first. Everyone's guilty. No one escapes that verdict. It says so in Isaiah chapter 53. We've, we, we unpacked that a few weeks ago where it says all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all wandered away from God. We, we've all sought our happiness, our joy, our refuge, our protection, our safety, our security elsewhere. And the way that, that Israel is pictured here in, in, in verse 6 uh, in their string is that, that, that Israel is an abandoned wife who has been abandoned because she abandoned her husband first. You know, the Lord says, for a brief moment, Israel, I deserted you. For a brief moment, I hid my face from you. Why did he do that? Because they had deserted him, because they had hid their faces from him. A lot like Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they realized that they were guilty, and so they ran and hid. They, they didn't want to hear the voice of the Lord. They didn't want to deal with the voice of the Lord because they knew they were guilty. And Israel has this whole history. If you, if you read through the, the Old Testament, Israel's got this long history of, of betraying and of deserting God and of accruing guilt for themselves, both in times of adversity and in times of prosperity. So, so the adversity years were um, you know, sort of well represented in those 40 years where they were wandering in the wilderness right? God had sent them out into the wilderness to live as a people out there. But after a, a very significant event, saving them from an oppressive political dictator named Pharaoh and, 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 and doing it so dramatically that, that, that he parted the oceans and, and had Israel escape through the parted waves. And then after Israel made it safe to the other side, smothering Pharaoh and the Egyptian soldiers with the water. And this miracle had to be very visibly still etched in the memory of, of so many Israelites who are now wandering in the wilderness. But over time, they got tired of the desert. They got tired of the heat, of the sweat. They got tired of the monotony of manna. Manna was this sweet bread that... God sent down to the people of Israel from the sky on a daily basis. Okay, can you imagine ever getting tired of bread from the sky? Can you, can you imagine getting bored with bread from the sky? And yet they did. They grew ambivalent. And then they got bored with every other form of nourishment that God sent. It was too repetitious. It was too monotonous. It was too predictable. The same old story. Yeah, yeah, God delivered us from slavery. Tell us again. 
the same old prayers, the same old songs, the same old sermons, the same old Bible, the same old promises, the same old liturgies, same, 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 same. And what they ended up doing was grumbling, grumbling about bread from the sky. We're just tired of this. We have a more sophisticated palate than this. You know, every year, I, and Patty and I, as well as a few other friends, are generously invited to a dinner. This is the kind of dinner that we, we wait for the date before we schedule anything else during that season. It's right before the Christmas holiday, right? And it's some friends of ours, and they, they pull together a handful of their, their friends, and they feed us every year the same thing. Prime rib, and either either Alaska, fresh Alaskan salmon or Chilean sea bass, and it's all cooked like to perfection. And just jokingly, one one of the people, one of the other guys that was there this past year, and I, this is about our third or fourth year consecutive uh, at this dinner. Uh, after the prime rib had been served, uh, he looked at me and he said, "Prime rib again?" And 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 of course he was he was teasing. But this is what Israel's doing. Again, the story of our deliverance, again, God's presence in the form of, of a visible cloud of, of, of fire, uh, you know, or a cloud in the day and a fire by night, again. Promises, again, of a future where we're gonna, we're gonna live and dwell in a land flowing with milk and kind again? Same old, same old. So that's Israel in adversity, but in prosperity, it doesn't get any better. You know, their ship eventually does come in. God eventually does give them that land that they had promised. God eventually does give them victory over all those who had oppressed them and defeated them. And they're living in prosperity. They're living in peace. And what happens? Again, they become bored. Bored with the prime rib. Tired of the same old stuff. The same old blessings. Tired of the same old story. I mean, what does a story of struggle and salvation have to do with our lives now? Because we're killing it now. Struggle and salvation, who cares? We're crushing it. We've got money, we've got sex, we've got power, we've got things, all the things. And what they started to, to want was something more exciting. How about these Canaanite gods, these so-called Canaanite gods, the ones that promise more sex, that promise more finances, that promise more power? Let's, let's go after those. We're not going to entirely discard Yahweh and put him in the, the rear view. I mean, we'll hold on to him, but, but we also want some other gods on the side. So that was the story of Israel. The biblical word for this, you know, living as if God's not enough, feeling like, oh, we need to spice up our lives because we're just tired of the same old Bible, same old songs, same old sermons, same old liturgy, same old rhythms of life. God calls it adultery. That's what he calls it. You're cheating on me. Another word for adultery, spiritual adultery, is idolatry. John Calvin described it this way. He says, every human heart is, is like an uh, idol factory. It's a factory that, that churns out false gods. We, we can't help ourselves. Jamie Smith more recently has said that the human heart is a hungry hunter, always on the hunt 
for something to plug our emotional umbilical cords into that's not God. You know, David Paulison, who's from our tradition, says that idolatry is a problem of the heart, a metaphor for human lust, craving, yearning, and greedy demand. So you may be familiar with the work of David Foster Wallace, who was a famous American philosopher and writer, uh, not a Christian, uh, didn't identify, I don't think, with any specific religion, but he, he was also one who spoke of, of how you're going to drive yourself crazy if you don't have some form of religion, and ultimately he committed suicide. So he never found his answers. But in an address to uh, Kenyon College, this was a commencement address, he gave this famous speech. And in that speech, he, he said this. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what it is that we will worship. The compelling reason, Foster Wallace said, to worship God, to be a religious person, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money, you'll never feel like you have enough money. If you worship sexual allure, eventually you'll start aging and you'll start to feel ugly. If you worship power, eventually you're going to feel weak and afraid. If you worship your intellect, eventually you're going to feel stupid like you're a fraud. You hear what he's describing? He's like saying, like idolatry is like a venereal disease on your soul. You keep getting into bed with people, places, things that are not your true husband, and you're diseasing yourself, voluntarily exposing yourself to things that will wreck you. Adultery is going to wreck you. It's going to wreck you. That's his message to Israel. You see it there in the unfolding, even of the patriarchs. There's, there's the craving for power. It's, it's, it's the fear of a loss of power, a fear of a loss of his place, that Abraham is willing to, to even offer his own wife to male predators twice in order to preserve his own position. That's a craving for power gone bad. Or, you know, Isaac, his son, does the same thing with his wife. And then Isaac's son, Jacob, ex exploits his own father's uh, disability in old age. His father had grown blind, and he exploits that disability in order to steal something from his brother. Craving for money, craving for health. There, there it is. There's the craving for power, there's the craving for money, and also sex. His son Judah slept with prostitutes. It's the same Judah that Jesus Christ came from, eventually. You know, we ask ourselves, you know, God, couldn't you have used better ingredients? When you're cooking up this story of redemption, couldn't you have used better ingredients? And he, here's the answer to that question, there is no such thing. There is no such. What makes you and I think that, that we would have done it any better than Abraham or Judah or the other? What, what makes us think that we would have, you know, approached this thing with more virtue? The 
Better ingredients don't exist. You know, some of you may remember Joel and Katie Pollard. So Joel was, um, you know, occupied the, 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 the lead musician's role that, that, that we experienced Jesse Isley as and have for the last several years. But Joel, if you remember Joel, you, you know that he was also a chef at a restaurant called Marche, uh, which is one of the top restaurants in, in Nashville, it's in East Nashville. And uh, the sort of joke that we we came up with about Joel, it's not really a joke, it's actually true, is that Joel could take a can of Chef Boyardee and somehow figure out a way to turn it into a gourmet meal. He could take the most bland, mediocre, even distasteful ingredients and turn them into something wonderful, and that's precisely what is happening here. God is taking a mediocre people, a distasteful people, and he's first coming to them and he's, he's speaking an indicative. This is who you still are in my eyes. Your maker is your husband. For a brief moment, momentarily and only momentarily, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you with everlasting love. And I will never again be angry with you. I will never again rebuke you or depart from you. And then toward the end, to the unfaithful in us, he says... I'm making with you a covenant of peace. And that covenant of peace, or literally the covenant of shalom, the covenant of your flourishing, will not be removed from you. You know, Scotty Smith has said, he cannot love us more, he will not love us less. And, and, and that's coming through in passages like this one, but it, it gets even better. God is not only going to give his shalom, his covenant of peace to Israel, he is also going to bless the world and ultimately the universe through those very same people to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, to Jew and Gentile alike, to Israel and all other nations and the cosmos alike. That's all going to come through, through the initial conduit of Israel, his unfaithful bride. That's who he is. These people are the ancestors of Jesus Christ. The promises are the same for us. I mean, I marvel even that I get to stand up and do this. Like sometimes I will catch myself like, God really, <laughs> you know, put me in a position to communicate his word to other people. I'm the most selfish person I know. I, I really am. And, and, and yet that's how he works. He does not look for good raw material or better ingredients he takes Chef Boyardee and, and somehow, some way, through the Chef Boyardee produces in the lives of others something delicious. Smile because your guilt is taken care of, but also because your shame is gone. So, so there are two forms of shame that are addressed in, in the text in front of us. The first is the moral shame. I've, I've covered that ad nauseum, but, but um, you know, the late Francis Schaeffer, uh, who was a pastor in our tradition, um, said that if every person was required to carry a tape recorder with them around their neck for their entire lives, if you're under 40, a tape recorder, just imagine your iPhone voice recorder, but, but you have to do a lot of other things and push a lot of other buttons and it, it spits out a little product that you have to put in a thing and you hit play. And, anyway, 
just email me if you want a further explanation about what a tape recorder is, but it's like, it's like your voice recorder, right? If you carried a voice recorder with you at all times, which by the way, you do. <laughs> you ever had the advertisements uh, pop up on your phone that, from the conversation you were having with a friend that morning? Guess what? Big Brother's watching. But we do have a tape recorder, but, but what if it had to be played for the entire human race? You know, Schaefer said, if that were the case, we would all just try to not exist from this point forward because of the shame, because of the shame. I've got a, I've got a, a season still in eighth grade that I look back to and still feel ashamed about that season. See, because I was insecure. I was afraid I wouldn't be popular. I was afraid I wasn't going to get invited to the parties. I was afraid that I'd get made fun of. And so I thought, I'm going to try the class clown route. And, and the problem with that is that I'm not really that funny. I don't have a gift for comedy. And, and so it came out in really, like, shameful ways. Still remember the day when, when this kid named Devin courageously raised his hand to answer a question that the teacher had asked and he answered it incorrectly and my impulse was to say that was stupid in front of the whole class got a few laughs not long after that there was a there was a girl sitting um, you know in the second row in homeroom and I thought now's my chance the teacher just left the room and so I said hey Ann you're ugly and I said it in front of the whole class got a few laughs but both times I felt dirty, and, and, and I still, look, kids, <laughs> you will feel dirty at age 51 for things that you do right now. Like, those things never leave you, and, and maybe that's a grace. Maybe that's God continuing to remind me, I brought you from a hopeless place. And to, to these two eighth grade scenarios, you could add 80 more memories of moral shame, regret that, that has led me to feel dirty, unworthy, unlovable. You got any of those? Our guilt is the regrettable things we've done. Our shame is the regrettable people that we have come to believe that we are because of what we've done, because of what we thought or said. So there's moral shame that's being addressed here, but then there's also social shame. You notice how Israel is described as a barren woman, a woman who is unable to have children either because she has not had a marriage opportunity or because she is married, but, but her and her husband are infertile. So, so we look at that and we think, yes, that, that is even still a wound for, for a lot of people. But for a woman in those days and in those times in that part of the world, it was a sentence. It was a verdict that said, you are not worth a thing. If you cannot produce children, and especially if you cannot produce boy children. If you cannot produce boy children, you'll be a disappointment to your husband because Boy children represent financial stability. They were the workers in the field in this agrarian economy that they were in. They were also the retirement plan. They didn't have 401ks, they didn't have cash storage, you know, under the mass mattress or anything else. You needed kids that would survive you and take care of you in your old age. Otherwise, you were vulnerable. There's also his legacy. If she can't give him sons, then his name doesn't continue. And then that becomes a shame thing for him. 
in that society. She also, if she was um, barren, regarded as a disappointment to society because, because women who had many sons, they were the national heroes. Because if you had many sons, that means you were supporting the military. That means you were supporting uh, the workforce. That means that you were supporting the tax base by sending more boys who would become men out into the world. This helps us understand why, you know, the, sort of the famously barren women in Scripture were so undone by their barrenness. You know, Sarah says to Abraham, you know, they've been infertile for years. You know, eventually she breaks and says, you give me children or I'm going to die. My life is not worth living unless I have children. And then there's Hannah, who also is described as barren. And it says that there's a point in, in Hannah's life where she is, is bitter in her soul. It's just a bitterness. Every time she hears of a friend being pregnant, it just mocks her. And there are two kinds of solutions that they went for and that we could go for. There's the desperate solution and then there's the, the healing one. The desperate solution is this. Okay, so you can't have children, then find some other thing that can, can become your identity. That's what Hannah's husband Elkanah said to her. Okay, you can't have children, but I still love you dearly. Am, am I, I, not enough to give you the happiness, to give you the sense of security and identity? You know, okay, relocate your identity from, from the hope of having children to, to the fact that you have a husband who loves you. But Hannah appropriately would have none of it. What, what if you decide later on that, that, that you're tired of this? What if you die? What if, what if, what if? If we put our hope in, in, in things or people that, that can be lost, what, what, what's the point? But it is the desperate strategy. You know, I have no kids, but at least I have a husband. Or let's fast forward it into our situation. I have no money, but at least I have friends. I have no friends, but at least I'm in good shape. I'm overweight, but at least I have a good career. I'm unfulfilled in my career, but at least I have a likable personality. You feel me on this? You, you, know, like, you go there too, to, to these places? Like, I can't win at this game over here, but I'm gonna find somewhere where I can so I can convince myself that life is worth living a little bit longer. I have my own flashback, sixth grade. I had a sixth grade field day rival, 100-yard dash. We tied every time. His name was Doug. Later on, Patty and I are watching the Olympics, and all of a sudden, Doug is, is on the stand wearing a gold medal. Two things pop in my head. Number one, Scott, you lost. Number two, at least I have a master's degree. Doug doesn't have a master's degree. At least I got him on that. Hashtag winning. No, you're not. That's the desperate solution. We look for something to plug our emotional umbilical cords into to feed us life, but instead we end up with venereal disease on our soul. There's a healing solution too. 
It's the true husband who can't die because he's already died and come up to life. There's the true husband who can't be taken away because he'll never forsake you and because his covenant of peace will not be removed and because he will never get angry with you again and because of all these other wonderful things that he says are fixed, solid, your identity. You will not be ashamed, disgraced, or confounded. You will forget the shame of your youth, the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. You ever notice too how Jesus goes out of the way to communicate that he is the bridegroom, especially to those who are dealing with moral and or social shame. To Zacchaeus, the known crook, the infamous crook, he says, I'm coming to your house today. We're gonna be friends. We're gonna eat together and salvation's coming to your home. I've had my eye on you, Zacchaeus. Or the prostitute in Luke chapter seven, when Jesus looks around and says, you see how well she's loving me. She understands forgiveness because she's been to the low place. Or the single women, the barren women by virtue of their singleness, that Jesus the angel of the Lord handpicks to be the first eyewitnesses to his resurrection and then to go tell the apostles that Christ is risen. It's a statement. Also, the social outcasts, including the lepers, including the pimps and prostitutes, including the paralytics and the men born blind and the poor, Jesus is so explicit and, and so dogged to get the message across, I'm with you and for you, that I came for the very likes of you, and so won't you come with me from this point forward? And then to convince us that it's true, he, he takes our guilt, pointing to the cross. You know, the Father forsakes him, puts the blame for all the wrongs that we've thought, said, and done upon Jesus, squarely upon Jesus, and then, and then transfers Jesus' perfect record of blamelessness, of righteousness, of beauty, and glory, and credits us with it so that he loves us just as much as he loves Jesus. He, he applauds us just as much as he applauds, applauds Jesus, not because of anything great that we've done, but because all of Jesus' record has now been credited to us. It's just it's like when you know, somebody hits a buzzer shot to, to win the championship, the whole team wins. It's almost as if you shot the shot. And then he takes our shame away by becoming naked on the cross, by becoming stripped. And, and they're, they're mocking him and, and belittling him and, and you know, making you know, small change bets on his clothes while he bleeds and dies naked and exposed shamed by the world. He dies on a trash heap. They, 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 they strip him of every bit of dignity so that he can clothe us with a garment of beauty and a garment of praise, with a wedding dress, as it were, called the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, so to quote Ray Ortland one more time, just to go back to that same excerpt I read at the beginning, the gospel on the basis of these things, on the basis of a guilt that's taken care of and a shame that is now gone because of Jesus, the gospel demands a carefree spirit. What a beautiful statement. If God's gonna demand something of you, is 
Isn't it a breath of fresh air? Almost a surprise to hear, wait, wait, he's demanding of me, first and foremost, a carefree spirit, to come to him, all who are weary and burdened, to get rest. Because he's gentle and humble in heart. What in the world is that? Jesus took every care to help us become carefree in him. If this cannot make us smile, then what can? God takes Chef Boyardee and turns it into a gourmet meal, and he wants to do that with you too. Come to his table and see for yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Todd, will you lead us? Well, I want to invite all the hosts and helpers to come on up, and I want to invite the children to rejoin us as we prepare to partake in our husband's table. Uh, this table is not a Christ Presbyterian table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It's our husband's table, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this table is for sinners. It's for people who are not perfect, but who have and do confess Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so if you are one who has given yourself uh, married Jesus, then this table is for you. If that doesn't describe you, if that's not who you are at this time, we're so thankful that you're here. And we would say to you, we've put some prayers in the bulletins and in the Bibles that are in the pews. Read those uh, during this time. Or you're welcome to come up here and observe. Uh, so uh, take advantage of that. And just, this is a family meal. And so it's loud and a little rambunctious. Take time to meet and greet one another. Um, so also there are folks on either side of the sanctuary. If you want to be prayed for or prayed with, take advantage of that as well. Uh, we're going to quote Dr. Ortland again through a responsive prayer so would you turn your eyes and your hearts to the screen and join with me? What does it mean to seek the Lord? To seek the Lord is to stop dawdling and to become intentional about him, setting highest value on him, removing everything that keeps us from him, hearing his word without backtalk, opening up to his will with no preconditions, budgeting our time and money for his calls first. Seeking the Lord is a whole life realignment with Christ. We stop treating him as a religious garnish on the side. He becomes our continual feast, our defining center, and the time to move in his direction is now. So <clears throat> would you pray with me? Father, take these ordinary elements of bread and juice and wine and do something extraordinary with them. Nurture and nourish us as only you can, we ask it in Christ's name, amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you, take and eat. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Would you turn your eyes and your hearts to the screen? Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. The gifts of God for the people of God come to the table.